Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark ch- or your Bible apps to Mark chapter four, um, we're going to stay there. We're going to stay at four and five. So all you got to do is you know do a little flipping, and uh, you won't have to go anywhere else. Um, last week I preached a message uh, called Lord of All, and I talked about Jesus Christ is Lord of All. And at the end of the message, which by the way I was so encouraged by, like when I was done, I I felt like I could have ran laps, which I'm not going to do because I don't really like to run. But I felt like I could have had I had, you know, had I liked to run. Um, But I was encouraged and I was fired up, and I'm like, I'm preaching another message the next week on Jesus being Lord of all, because I don't know that we're convinced that He's Lord of all. I think we're convinced that He's Lord of a lot. He sure is lordish, and he's big, and he's lord of most. But we, we elevate some things above him, whether we know it or not. We elevate certain things above him. We think they're, they're more daunting to God, and so there's times we don't even ask. We don't even bring it before the Lord, and we just allow the bigness of something else to weigh on. The Gospel of Mark is an awesome, awesome book. Um, It moves us from Jesus' greatness as a teacher to his greatness as the Lord of the universe. And so we're going to cover some of that today. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 4. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to just proceed you know, with that very next verse. I'm always curious sometimes why they choose to break up a chapter where they do. And this is another one. Like, Mark 5 is just like the, the continuation of Mark 4. So let's, let's not let it think it's a new topic because it's not, okay? So Mark 4, 38. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? So if I can pause right here. This is clearly the, the story of Jesus calming the storm. And this, this monumental storm came against him and Jesus was re- resting. And I think we're going to see that, that Jesus was probably pretty dang exhausted. But he was asleep. And they were fearing for their lives. And they actually questioned the integrity of Christ. Do you not care? And I pause there because I think a lot of times we do the same thing. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Friends, I'm telling you right now, he always cares. He always loves. If our heart's in that place, I think it's good to open up the dialogue with the Lord. But our perspective is usually on the wrong thing, usually on the storm instead of on the the storm calmer. And he awoke and Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And when it says here that it ceased, it ceased. It didn't die down. It didn't go from this to this to this. It didn't do that. It went from this to this. It obeyed his word. Peace, be still. And there was great calm. And then he said to them, his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea 
obey him. Verse 41 says they were filled with great fear. I imagine it was just a an indescribable combination of terror and reverence. Who, who is this that even the wind obeys him? Who is this that even the nature, creation, obeys him? You guys, when's the last time you were overcome with godly reverence, godly fear, and said to yourself, how great is my God? Who, who then is this that even calms this storm? This verse and this chapter end with the, disci- the disciples discussing this miracle, right? Who, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We see in this that Jesus Christ is Lord of all in seeing that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. Are you audacious enough to believe that? Do you know that when, and I'm not making this up, my mom's there, she can attest to it. When we were young, we were kids, I was, I was just a kid, and there was a tornado coming at us, and it was just right on path, and my dad was audacious enough to not shelter at that moment, because he's like, we're getting hit. And he, he, he looked at that and said, in the name of Jesus, move. And the tornado skipped our house. Are you audacious enough to, to, in the name of Jesus, speak to the weather because you believe? You know what? I don't know if he will, but he might. And he gave me this authority to speak in, so I'm going to speak in that same authority. Are you just so audacious? And if we're not, why aren't we? Who are we, who we afraid we're going to look stupid to? And you already look stupid all the time. Like we look stupid all the time. I looked stupid this week in my March Madness brackets. Man, they were horrible. Looked stupid. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So anyone curious? I'm going to kind of pause here on like preaching. And I'm going to give like some facts, some information. Because I just, I get curious. Anybody curious about how long that trip from Capernaum to Nicopolis would be across uh, across the Sea of Galilee. Okay, I, all of you are. You guys are riveted, I can tell. Okay, so here's some research. I did research on a biblical hermeneutics page. Um, so it would not be unheard of or unusual at all for any one leg of the trip to be against the wind and then one leg of the trip, trip running with the wind. Um, it would make one leg of the trip much longer and one leg of the trip much shorter and that's going from west, I'll, I'll do it where you guys are sitting, from west to east, like from, you know, Capernaum, you know, on the, this side to going over on the east side, um, that's where they were going. The, if they set, so on a calm day with a favorable wind, with the amount of miles it was, the trip could take perhaps six hours. On a day with unfavorable winds, you would never even make it out of the harbor, so we know that it was neither calm nor daytime because we see in scripture that it says in the evening Jesus said, let's go to the other side. So they set sail either in the evening or at night, okay? Um, so let's say they, let's call it, I don't know. Let's call it an eight-hour trip. Let's call it a nine-hour trip. 
you got a storm, you got gale force winds, and that's going to slow you down. And then all of a sudden, you have the unideal conditions of total calm. That's going to slow you down. So if they left at night, let's just, let's just say, you know, nine-hour trip, they got there at 5 a.m., okay? Why, why did I take the time to kind of babble about how long that would take? Because sometimes we don't, we don't sit to really look at Scripture to see the circumstances of what's going on. They went through, the disciples now, they went through a, a situation where they were absolutely terrified, thought they were going to die, accused Jesus of not caring about them. Then they are humbled and in awe and in complete reverence and fear as they see nature obey him where the, the sea comes to a complete standstill. So they've got a 13-mile trip to get across. I don't know where they were in the Sea of Galilee when, when the storm hit, but they, they've got quite a while to get to the other side. So now it's early morning, and just kind of put yourself in the shoes. What are you thinking at, at 5 a.m.? When you're like, land, thank God, land. Where's the nearest IHOP? I could use breakfast. I could use a nap. Uh, you know, I, I just have images of people kissing, like a Bugs Bunny type cartoon of like kissing the ground when they got off the boat, right? Let's go look at the next verse, Mark 5, 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, finally land. Verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Which is just a gross, gross understatement at this point. Someone who lives in the tombs, in the tombs, just as a rule of thumb, someone who lives in the tombs doesn't have an unclean spirit. They have lots of unclean spirits. Doesn't look like we're getting any pancakes, boys. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and always cutting himself with stones. Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So I want to make something clear here. The dialogue that the Lord's having with this man, he's not having with this man. He's having with these spirits. He's, he's speaking with a, rest, a representative demon within this man. And when they saw Jesus, and I say they because he says, you know, our name is Legion for we are many. And a Roman legion um, is somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 men. So that's soldiers, volunteers, and people that have been commissioned to be a part of a Roman legion. We're talking about thousands 
And this representative of this demonic group inside this man says, we are a legion. There's many. But, but here's the thing that's interesting. They see Jesus coming from far off, and they recognize who he is, and they call him the Son of God. They know who he is. And they show up, and they're bargaining. They're pleading with him. Interestingly enough, Jesus entertains it. Verse 11, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged Jesus, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, before you entrepreneurs start feeling bad for the owners of the pigs, um, this is still historical and traditional Israel. And even though there was a large occupation of uh, Romans and Greeks, they still had no business raising pigs on what's considered holy land. So don't, don't feel too bad for them. And also I want to point this out. Jesus didn't kill the pigs. Jesus didn't kill the piggies. The demons did. Okay? So people are like, I'm so mad at Jesus killed the pigs. He didn't kill the pigs. Verse 14. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Same word of what the disciples were, what we read earlier. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. On the Sea of Galilee, we see that Jesus is Lord of creation. And in this instance, we see that Jesus is Lord over Satan. We should never think that the devil, I don't care how many like horror movies, like possession movies, which we probably shouldn't be watching anyway, but how many, you know, we should never think that Satan is mightier than our God. That the devil is bigger than our God. There are angels, there are angels, and there are demons. And we should never fear demons. They have to respond to the name of Jesus Christ. I also want to point something out. Talk about the people in, in this region. And it says they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Friends, I know none of us would do this, so give me, allow me a little bit of leeway here. Are we ever like so intimidated by the power of God that we just beg Jesus to leave? Are we ever so intimidated by, by the moving of God and, and, and the unknown things of God that we beg Jesus to leave? Because you know what's going to happen? What we see right here, he got in the boat and he went. And if we don't give room for God to be God and not fit him into our tiny little box, of what we think God should fit into, man, we, are, we should never do that. Man, I could preach on that alone. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. 
And, and he, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I find it interesting to this, this mainly Roman and Greek community Jesus says, oh yeah, tell everybody. Tell everybody. Go, go show yourself to everybody. Let them see what I've done. But what we see is, is with the Jewish culture, he doesn't. The Jewish community, he says, hey, keep us on the down low. Don't tell anybody. Timing matters. And then you know what Jesus does? It ain't IHOP. It ain't Waffle House. He gets back in the boat for probably the, the gentler of that ride home, so it's another, a mere six-hour drive home. I want to point this out because Jesus understands weary. Jesus understands when you're weary. Jesus understands when you're exhausted. Jesus understands when you're tired, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, friends, there's times that we need to draw upon the strength of Jesus because there's one more person to touch. Then we can rest in the boat. It's interesting because we don't think of Jesus being weak, but he was so weak in that, that boat that he slept in the midst of a storm, but so strong and mighty that he took authority over it. Verse 21. And when, so, okay, they're in the boat. What did I say, six hours? Six hours. We're in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. He wasn't just beside the sea. I imagine he was beside himself, like going, oh, man. <laughs> then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, uh, Jairus by name. And seeing him, this ruler of the synagogue fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, uh, You see that the crowd is pressing all around you, right? And yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
and be healed of your disease. Mm. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Don't, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of his synagogue, do not fear. Only believe. Man, that should be on every one of our refrigerators. Do not fear. Period. Only believe. Exclamation mark. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I don't know if our laugh is a verbal laugh. I don't know if our laugh is an audible laugh. But friends, when we, when we don't believe Jesus is who he says he is and who he's demonstrated he is and who the word of God says he is, we laugh at him. Either, either he's Lord of all or he ain't. And if he's Lord of all, he is Lord of all. But he put them all outside. Good for him. Get out. Get out. This ain't even your house. You can't tell me. Get out. Get out. Peter. Some, some had to be thrown out, right? I mean, just I like the story a little bit better when Peter roughs up somebody and throws them out. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, arise. I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And then I love the practicality of this. I love this. He's starving. Jesus is starving. His disciples are starving. They have been on the most treacherous adventure ever. And what does he say? He's so thoughtful. He speaks to this girl and says, or to the parents says, hey, get her something to eat. I, I just love that. I don't know. I just, man, that's Jesus. That is so Jesus. Jesus is Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over Satan. Jesus is Lord over disease. And Jesus is Lord over death. He is Lord of all. Okay, now maybe you guys have seen this because you guys are a pretty sharp crowd. And maybe, maybe you haven't seen this. But in all four of these instances, you know what we also see? A bowing of the knee. Creation bowed its knee 
to the words of Jesus Christ. He spoke, he said, be still. And creation humbled itself, bowed its knee, and was still. The demon-possessed man, the demonized man, they see Jesus. They recognize Jesus. They run to him and go back and read it. In, in Mark 5, they, th- they fall on their face before him. They fall at the feet of Jesus out of fear and out of recognition of who he is. Okay? Out of fear and recognition and out of some sort of bargaining, but they fall at the feet of Jesus. What happens with the woman and the issue of blood? She recognizes that her body is healed, then she falls at the feet of Jesus out of gratitude and amazement and love. And then Jairus sees Jesus and he falls at the feet of Jesus, something that that could have gotten him fired, probably could have gotten him stoned because of his position as a Jewish leader. You don't acknowledge someone else as Lord of anything much less a man as Lord. That's ultimately what Christ was crucified for. But Jairus fell at his feet in recognition, humility, and faith and said, I know if you, if you touch her, she will be healed. She will live. Uh, Matthew, could you come like a, just give me a little, a little strumming. So how do we fall at the feet of Jesus? I'm telling you right now, a recognition and making Jesus Lord of all requires humility. It requires that we humble ourselves before the Lord. It requires humility. So the first way that we can fall at our knees is I'm just being honest with you. Every now and then, get on your knees. It's not a form of worship that has passed us by. It's not. As Matthew was leading worship today, he got on his knees and continued to still lead us in worship. From time to time, get on your knees and acknowledge him as Lord of all, Lord of your life, Lord of your problems or your sickness or your heaviness or your sin or your shame or whatever it is. But from time to time, get on our knees. We can also, we can revere and honor the Lord and humble ourselves in our worship, even if it's not in our knees. But if we are bowing the knee of our heart, if we're bowing the knee of our heart and and saying, Oh, Jesus, I give you my all. You guys, expressive forms of worship, especially ones that we're not comfortable out, it's, it's a bowing of the knee of our heart. Well, I'm not comfortable raising your hands. Well, then raise both of them and raise them wide and raise them big. And do it for the king. Do it as a sign of surrender. Do it as a sign of receiving. Do it as a sign of, of the exaltation. And we can bow our knee in the surrender of of sinful habits. I'm not talking about the one-offs, okay? And not that it really matters. Sin is sin is sin. But just stay with me. The one-offs. Someone cuts you off, you cuss at them, shoot them the bird, whatever. Oh, man, dang it. That, oh. 
Okay, I'm not talking about the one-offs. I'm talking about those things that we know that we're going to do today and tomorrow and the next day because we have made ourselves Lord of our life. And so we know this is something, that this is sin, and I'm going to keep doing it. And if we will just bow our knee and fall at his feet, he will set us free from anything that looks like an addiction or bondage or death. But we have to make him Lord of all. Can we just close our eyes for a second? This is a moment to respond. I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up, to wave your hands, to make broad declaration. But here's what, what we must do is we must respond to the urging of the Holy Spirit who's trying to guide us into the truth of a life of freedom in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, Lord of all. If there's any conviction right now of anything that, that the Lord is asking you to lay at his feet and make him Lord of, then just respond with, yes, Lord. Not just lip service, with your lips, with your heart, with your total being, say, yes, Lord. For those things that you think are bigger than God, he's asking you to lay that at his feet and recognize his bigness. He is Lord over death. He is Lord over disease. He is Lord of all. If there's anybody here that just feels like they're at the end of their rope, he's asking you just to surrender your rope and trust him and say, I'll give you strength. To hear him say that to you, I'll give you strength. Let me be your Lord. So just take a moment, just respond to the Lord. Um, stay, stay where you're at and stay what you're doing, but I do want to throw this out there. If there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, that's never given their life to him, that's never trusted their life in him, you've never made that confession with your lips, Jesus is Lord. I give him my life. He is Lord. And believe in your heart that he is Savior, that he can give you new life, that he's already paid for it. And right now your heart is filled with belief. If you've never given your life to Christ, um, with all eyes closed, but, uh, but if I'm talking to you, you can open your eyes and you can lock eyes with me and say, this day I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to commit my life to him. I believe that he is my Savior and I want to proclaim him as Lord. Is there anybody? We just open our eyes real quick. Um, I'm going to pray and pray a blessing over us in just a second here. And there's there's only freedom to be found, you guys, when we make Him Lord of all. Lord of all. And this is two weeks in a row. I don't think I'm I'm preaching Jesus as Lord of all part three. Maybe I am. I don't know. I'll see what Jesus thinks about it. But for us right now, he, he's, he's being redundant in this. So let's make sure that we are responding with a faith-filled heart, with reverence, 
in awe of who he is. Amen. Can we stand as I give this blessing and, and then we're done for the day? Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And he loves you. Keep the dialogue open with the Lord today and let's see what else he has to speak over you today. Love y'all. Have a great day.